0: invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. As I was studying this week, it it just struck me that we might wonder why uh, this is not a more practical book. If this is the last word that Jesus uh, has to speak to the church, it's the the last uh, revelation of the Lord uh, that we have written for us, uh, written around 90 A.D., uh, 60 years after Christ uh, ascended to heaven, so um, we might be looking for more uh, details about specific events or uh, or, or practical uh, how-to-live sorts of instructions, and yet we have none of that in the book of Revelation. What Jesus does here is uh, puts our lives in a glorious context. What He wants us to see is who we are, where we are, uh, to see the big picture and the, uh, the full glory of Jesus. Um, as as that intersects with the truth of our life and all the details and circumstances. And in Revelation chapter 11, uh, we have just a wonderful reminder and a picture again of who Christ is and who we are and uh, what our destiny in Christ really is. And Jesus believes that will make all the difference as we deal with the details of life Monday uh, through Saturday. Let's give our attention then to the Word of God. Remember, these are visions. John is is drawn up to heaven and sees these things and is commanded to write them down for us. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff... And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the, uh, from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven." The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. So far, the reading in the Word. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. God in heaven, we uh, come now before this, uh, your Word given to us. Uh, You tell us, Lord, blessed are those who take up and read, and I pray that you'd bless us this morning as we unpack uh, the truth you have for us here, your church. Pray in Jesus' name, Amen. The title of my message is The Invincible Suffering Victorious Church. Sinclair Ferguson tells the story of an elderly friend of his who, um, when he was a younger man, had found himself uh, unexpectedly on uh, center stage at a significant historical event in Great Britain. The, um, The occasion was the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, obviously a big deal uh, for the citizens of that country. And and, uh, this man's parents... Um, knew people who knew people, and they had been invited. They are on the list of those who were invited to attend the coronation ceremony at Westminster Abbey. This is uh, 1953. And so on the morning of the occasion, this young man decided to drive his parents, and they pulled out the old Bentley, and uh, he seated his parents in the back and and drove them into the city. Well, uh, because they had special passes, they were allowed into uh, back streets and alleys that others were forbidden to enter. And and so he's making his way, but not quite sure where to go. Ago, and at a critical junction, he makes a wrong turn. And uh, they, they find themselves suddenly um, on the, the, the great mall, the, the great street that is often used. You've seen it for, for uh, all sorts of uh, parades or special occasions you've seen it on the television. Maybe you've been there. But there they are driving down this, this great mall. The, 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 the uh, sides are thronged with crowds, and uh, he's the only car on, on the road. And the, the crowds come to their feet, and they begin wildly cheering and, and waving their flags as he's driving. His parents are seated in the back like minor royalty, and, um, and he finds himself unexpectedly in the center of the event. He'd come just to witness something, but now he's a participant in it. Well, uh, that sort of thing is happening in, in the book of Revelation. Uh, we come to the book of Revelation expecting to be shown things about Jesus and about the kingdom of, of, uh, of, of heaven, but we find in the book of Revelation that we're not just witnesses watching something unfold. John himself, remember, is caught up and, and told, come up here. He enters into the scene, brought up onto the stage, and that's exactly what we see here uh, concerning the church. That we're not just witnesses to the glory of Christ. Uh, the church here is, is called up onto the stage. We have a part to play in this great drama of redemption. And so this morning, uh, what Jesus wants us to see is our place in his great works. So Jesus wants to see who he is and what he's doing. But then also to see who we are and what we're called to as Um, as the people of God, the church of God in the world today, he wants us to understand uh, the church and see ourselves as he sees us. So this is looking at the church in a sense from the perspective of Jesus himself. But we're going to see this morning that the church is is known and loved and secure, uh, that it has a mission in the world, that it's going to suffer because of that mission, but it is promised... uh, final vindication and victory. And so let's look together at uh, these, these verses. And, and uh, the text begins, verses 1 and 2, uh, John is told to take a measuring rod and measure uh, the temple. Uh, w- what temple? Well, it wouldn't be the, uh, the, the temple in Jerusalem. That was already destroyed. Remember, this is a vision. Uh, the temple that John is, is invited to measure is the, is the heavenly temple. It, and, and because he's told to measure this, this heavenly temple with the, um, with the altar and with the worshipers, he's told, to, he's told to actually to measure the church. The church is the temple of God. It is, it's the place where God dwells. God um, has made us into his holy city. And so um, John is told to measure the church. Well, what's the significance of measuring and numbering those who worship there? Well, in the Scriptures, numbering is a way of, of um, owning and claiming. Uh, it shows ownership and care. So in Isaiah chapter 40, 26, uh, the, uh, the prophet talks about God who numbers the stars and calls them all by name. And because of his great power, the text says, not one of them is missing. Uh, God created the stars, He numbers the stars, He names the stars, and by His power uh, holds them and and none of them is lost. And, And the church, if you remember what God said to Abraham, the church, your descendants, Abraham, will be like the stars of heaven. Every individual in the church is known by God, named by God, claimed by God. It expresses ownership and care. When you buy a piece of property, you need the title deed, and and the property has to be carefully measured and recorded so that every inch of that property is, is known and claimed by you as your own possession. Well, God wants us to know that that is true of you. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ and been made a member of His church, did not happen by accident god took you and god put you a living stone into this temple that he is building he knows you he's numbered you he's named you you're owned by him he claims you for himself you're not just an anonymous identity floating around somewhere in god's universe you belong to him he he claims you he's made you part of his heavenly temple which shows us our true identity i like uh, G.K. Beale describes Christians as citizens, members of the of the heavenly community living on earth. We tend to think of ourselves as um, members of the earthly community headed for heaven. But but a, a better way of saying it is we're members of the heavenly community, temporarily living here. Now that's essential to know because. The experience of the church, the experience of God's people here on earth, will challenge their identity as citizens of heaven. You would think that citizens of heaven would maybe have an an easy path, and the text clearly shows us that they do not. One of the debates uh, in uh, verse 2, there are several debates. Regarding this chapter, but one of the debates in, ver- in verse two is, what does it mean that John is told to refrain from measuring the outer court? We're told that the outer court is given over to the nations, and uh, and they will trample the nations, the Gentiles will trample the holy city for 42 months. As you uh, maybe remember, in the Old Testament, there are um, the court, the temple had an inner court and an outer court. Uh, the inner court was for uh, Jewish men. The outer court was for Jewish women and Gentiles. The, uh, they were all true worshipers. They all had access in this, to the Lord, but, but men had a unique access. Now, you can say, well, that doesn't sound very uh, fair. It doesn't you can talk to the Lord about it later. It was his rule. Um, they're not thinking in those days like 21st century Americans. But there's a, there's, a different, there's a distinction of access in the Old Testament. Uh, pre, right, even the Jewish men are not allowed into the Holy of Holies. There, there's a distinction of access. Only one man once a year is allowed into the Holy of Holies. Well, in the New Testament, what we find is that there, there's an erasing of some of the distinction. There's, so Paul will say, here there's no male, female, Jew, uh, Jew or Gentile. Slave or free? What? But 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 we right? We are there's one. We are all together, the body of Jesus Christ, and we all have access. Uh, There's no distinction of access. It it doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what your background. Doesn't matter what your theological pedigree. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you call Abba Father in faith, He will hear you. No distinction of access. However, there remains a distinction of experience in the church uh, when you think of the church as made up not only of those who are on earth, but those who are in heaven. And so if there's an inner court and outer court, there is the, uh, the, uh, the people of God around the throne of God in heaven, and then there are the saints still here on earth, and clearly the saints on earth are the ones who are going to experience the trampling of the nations for 42 months. There's going to be suffering. Jesus wants his church to know this. This has been a repeated theme uh, in, this, in this revelation. The church is going to suffer. The holy city, the city that belongs to God, loved by God, is going to be trampled by the nations for a period of 42 months. Now, uh, as we've said it before, numbers matter in Revelation. And I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but number, the number 42 uh, is a significant number. It is... It it stands for, represents a period of trial and pilgrimage and suffering right before you get into the rest. So some scholars will uh, suggest that the um, Israel coming out of Egypt and on their way to the land of Canaan, some say it took 42 years, two years to get to Sinai, 40 years after that. I'm not sure if that's true. It's very possible. One thing we do know for certain about uh, Israel and the number 42, if you look in Numbers 33, and you can do this. I, I, um, I learned this this week and couldn't believe it, so I went back and did, did the work myself. In Numbers 33, boys and girls, you can do this maybe today over a dinner table. Numbers 33, it lists all the camps where Israel stayed on their journey. And guess how many different camps they stayed at, uh, in, during that journey. 42, you're paying attention. That's great. 42, I think that's fascinating. Uh, wh- why would 42 be um, interesting? Well, um, I think the, it's 7 times 6, right? For mathematicians, 7 times 6. Uh, seven, the number of perfection. Six, the number of, of almost, uh, six, six the, the number for labor. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh day is Sabbath, day of rest. Um, the seven times six, 42 camps, it, it, it just signifies this is the labor period and we're just about to the rest. We're getting very close, and, and, and yet this is, the time of, this is the time of labor. This is the time of trial, and you'll see that um, in the book of Daniel. I think John is pulling right out of the book of Daniel here. In several places in the book of Daniel, he talks about a period of trial and tribulation that lasts three and a half years. Now the, the significance there is, Israelites often would count a um, a month as 30 days, commonly, and a year as 360 days, and so three and a half years equals 42 months. In verse three here, we have the number 1,260 days. Well, if a month is 30 days, uh, how many months does that add up to? 42 months. It's all the same number. What does Jesus want us to know? Well, He wants His church to know that though we are eternally secure, no named, numbered by God, we are going. We are in a time of pilgrimage. We're in a time of trial. We're in a time a time of, of, of suffering, but we're almost there. We're almost home. We're just about into the eternal rest. And so what, what's going to happen in this period of time? And Jesus tells us, he in verses 3 through 6, we're told of two witnesses. They are granted authority by God, by Christ, and they prophesy for 42 months, for 1,260 days. And so in these last days, the church has a calling. we got a mission in the world, and that mission is to witness Notice the, the two witnesses are wearing sackcloth. That's, that's the robe of, of mourning. That's the, of soberness. The prophets did not usually wear flowery robes. They, they, they wore clothing that, that gave the sense that these are dire times, that something's wrong and something needs to be made right, that there's something urgent And the urgence, uh, their message was urgent, right? Their message was repent. Prophets were sent by God, in a sense, to to call, constantly call Israel back to covenant obedience. They're, They're there to adjudicate God's charge against Israel that they are being unfaithful to the covenant and they need to repent or God being faithful to his covenant will punish. That's the call of the prophets. Well, that's the call of the church, If you look at the apostles, they're sent out, and Jesus specifically sends them with a message of repentance. That message is accompanied, we're told here, by Holy Spirit power. That's the point of the olive trees and the lampstands. This is coming right out of Zechariah 4. Notice John is painting this picture, but the colors are all taken from the Old Testament. Boys and girls, uh, in those days, they didn't have electric lights, obviously, as we do today. They would light their homes with lamps. And lamps would burn, uh, burn oil. That's how, they made their, that's how they made their light. The problem with these lamps is you had to constantly be filling them. And that would often fall, boys and girls, to, to the boys and girls. That was their job. Well, um, in Zechariah 4, there's a vision of two uh, olive trees pouring oil continually into lampstands, which means that these lamps will never go out. And the prophecy there is of the Holy Spirit pouring his life-giving oil into the church so that the church can shine in a dark world. And so God says to Zachariah, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's how the cause of Christ and the mission of Christ is going to move forward in the world. That is how the church can shine, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are two witnesses sent because that is the, uh, the number required by Jewish law to establish a fact and prosecute a case. You could not pronounce a judgment against someone who'd been charged with a crime unless there were two witnesses. And again, it shows us that the calling of the church in the world is, is to judge the world, men and women made in the image of God, Descendants of Adam, we judge the world guilty of its crimes against God. We call the world to repent of those crimes. We lift up Jesus Christ as the Savior of criminals. The one who gave his life to die for sinners, to free them from the just condemnation due to them. Now, that does not seem like a pleasant message to the world. We're going to see that in a moment. The world will just say, keep, keep it to yourself. Unless you have a chipper Jesus, give me the, the health and wealth Jesus, the one who, who came to make my life more palatable, more easy, more successful, more prosperous. I'll listen to you talk about that Jesus all day long, but do not, don't talk to me about this Jesus. And yet, this is the mission. It's, it's so evident this is... This is the call, that we as the church, in an an essential way, we stand contramundum against the world, against its principalities and powers. That doesn't mean against its people. The people are the mission field. We're telling the people about the principalities and powers that are reigning and ruling and, and, and hold them enslaved and calling them and ourselves you see to freedom in Jesus Christ but that that's the mission and it's a mission with power if if you noticed in verses 5 and 6 there's reference here to Moses and the plagues, and to Elijah as he calls down fire from heaven. So verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky. Remember, Elijah prays that no rain may fall during the days of the prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. I remember um, oh, oh, back in the 90s, uh, Jack Wimber had a book um, about the the power. He was the the, uh, the, the founder of... Uh, the Vineyard churches, and a, 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 a Christian man, a committed man, and yet he's saying, "Man, I read my Bible and I see power." And so he's arguing for a ministry of miracles in the church because there there should be there should be evident power in the church. We should be raising dead people. We should be casting out demons. We should be doing everything that we see in 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 the New Testament. Well, the power that's mentioned here, it's power, but it's power to to bring judgment. That's that's the power. And the ministry of Moses and Elijah are clearly marked by that power, and and maybe we could ask, well, where's that in the church today? I mean, why don't we see this sort of power? Think about how effective you could be as an evangelist, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, or did you hear about that really, that fire storm that happened last week? Yeah, that that was me calling down fire from heaven on the enemies of God. Would you like to believe? I think people would like to believe. Why don't we have, John is on the island of Patmos. He's suffering for the cause of Christ. Paul's going to go to prison. He's going he's to die there. So almost all the apostles will die there. Why aren't they doing this? Well, the answer, of course, is We are in the book of Revelation, we are watching human history from the perspective of heaven. And from the perspective of heaven, we see the devastating power of the New Testament church in the spiritual realm. The gates of hell cannot stand against the onslaught of gospel mission as Christ victoriously through his gospel, by his church, and by the ministry of the of the church, Jesus Christ marches forward. And nothing can stand in his way. Mortals try. Chairman Mao, the communist dictator, um, promised to wipe the Chinese church from the face of the earth. Well, Chairman Mao, of course, is dead and buried, and the Chinese church stands millions strong. You see, Jesus wants to see the incredible power of the church as it engages in its mission. Think about the apostles, incredibly weak in the eyes of the world. And yet, and yet Peter and, and James and John and the apostle Paul have wielded more power in the history of the earth than all the kings of earth put together. In the spiritual realms, you see, their spirit-empowered witness to the risen, reigning King Jesus is the weapon that God uses to destroy demonic strongholds and invincibly expand the kingdom of God. Jesus wants us to see here the great power the church, the witnessing church has in the spiritual realm. That we are invincible as we engage in this mission. I recently heard a story of a time in World War II, two men, an older man, a younger man, both believers were walking through London and suddenly found themselves um, under a, an attack from German bombers. Uh, the young man uh, it, it was shrinking back in fear. His older companion said, just stay close to me. I'm invincible until my work is done. And that's exactly true for the church. In the spiritual realm, we are invincible by the power of Christ till the work is done. And then John shows us what will happen when the work is done, when it's through. Verses 7 through 10. We're told of a temporary, apparent triumph of the devil. Verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now, again, some of the commentators made the point that this war is Uh, between the devil and the church is is a constant reality in these last days and they're absolutely right. But I do think John is talking specifically here about the very end of time when the church has finished its testimony, God's elect have been gathered in And the church then will follow the steps of Christ. Remember, Jesus spent three years ministering and uh, testifying to the glory of God and the truth of his own person and work. And then he was crucified, and then he rose and ascended to heaven, and the church will follow his steps. And so it seems in the last days, the church will face overwhelming opposition and oppression, and it will seem like the world has won. The, the devil will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets. And, and, and Paul, uh, John mentions here Sodom representing moral degradation and Egypt representing political oppression. And Jerusalem, he, he mentions it as where the Lord was crucified, representing religious opposition. And so these cities represent the world, the principalities and powers of this dark, evil age in its rebellion against God. And there's a macabre scene here where the church is silenced, the bodies of the witnesses are lying in the streets, and the world refuses to let the bodies be buried. What does that mean? Well, that is, that is the ultimate scorning when you, when you kill the enemy and you leave their bodies in the street to rot, that is the ultimate evidence of scorn and contempt. The church is scorned, held in contempt. And those who dwell in the earth, verse 10, rejoice and make merry and they have parties and they and they exchange presents. It's wow. The Church really hates the church. the world really hates the church, and the principalities and powers of, of hell despise the church. There will be a making merry because you see, the world will be convinced it's finally won. No more talk about this holy God. No more talk about. Um, but sin, no more talk about repentance, no more talk about judgment or morality or created norms that ought to be observed or rules given by God that should be followed, no more of that. No God above the God of self. That's what the silence of the church means to the world, and that is good news to the world. It is gospel to the world. Imagine No no heaven, no hell, nothing above us, just sky. Right, John Lennon? All the world just united, living for today. That's the gospel for the world. And they will rejoice when the church is silenced. Because the message of the church has been a thorn in their flesh. But the joy will be short-lived. And that's how the story ends. After three days, and three and a half days... A breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet in great fear and fell on them. And so, um, you see, this is just following in the steps of Christ. The enemies of Jesus certainly rejoiced. I can, you can only imagine the, the, the high priest and the leaders getting together uh, the night that Jesus was killed and, and, and celebrating. No more of that voice. But the party was very short because in three days, Jesus... On that glorious Sunday morning, stood up on his feet, as the breath of God came and, and, and filled that glorified body. And Jesus Christ came out of the tomb, and great fear fell on those who saw it, and we follow his steps. We will rise, not just to life but to glory. A voice from heaven says, "Come up here." in the presence of God. What an incredible invitation to sinners. And yet sinners bought by the blood of Christ and and uh, and John wants us to see Jesus wants us to see this this day is coming, a day of vindication and victory for the scorned and suffering bride of Christ. And this is this is not a secret rapture. Some people talk about a secret rapture. Maybe you saw the movie Left Behind. Some of you maybe are still scarred by watching the movie, left behind it, uh, and uh, suddenly all the godly people just disappear. No, 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 no. Uh, on the last day, every eye will see Jesus come, and, and the world will watch as the church of Jesus Christ is called up to heaven to meet him. And then comes the judgment. Then the angel blew his trumpet, and the song of heaven begins. We give thanks to you. Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you've taken your great power and begun to reign. Notice uh, that we we've, we've saw a song like this earlier, and it, then it said, who is and who was and who is to come. And that is to come is missing from this song. Why is it missing? Because he came, he's here. Judgment day has, has arrived. This is the song we sing when Christ returns. And the theme of that song will be Jesus' victory over the nations. We're going to, over all of his enemies, over the principalities and powers of this world. We're going to see that more as we go through the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, Jesus is not ashamed to, to present himself as a mighty warrior doing battle and bringing the justice of God on this world. And the church celebrates his victory. Destruction given to the destroyers of the earth. Rewards given to Christ's servants. The prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both great and small. There's rewards to be given, not just to Pauls and the Peters and the Johns and the the great men and women of God, but to the small servants, you and me. We're going to be rewarded so as we wrap up, what does Jesus want us to know? I mean, you're busy people. You got a lot going on in your life, a lot of concerns, trials, heartaches, fears. What does Jesus want you to know this morning? Well, he wants you to know that if you have joined yourself by faith, if you've been joined by the power of God through faith and by grace, If you've been made a member of the church of Jesus Christ, a free gift of God, that changes everything. That defines who you are. That means that you are eternally known and named, numbered by God himself. And he'll never forget you. He'll never lose track of you. And by his great power, you will not be missing on that last day. That no matter what fears you might have you're right in, in your life today, you need not have any fear on that day. And because you need not have any fear on that day, wouldn't it be true that this same sovereign God who, who will hold you fast till then, that, this, that that God will be at work now in all of his love and power in all the details of your life today? What if sovereignty was really true? And what if love was really the 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 engine that drives it and that steers the sovereign power of God in your life. He wants you to know that, that you've been caught up into this great drama of redemption that, that we as, together as the church have a part to play. We're, we're called to be the witnessing body of Christ and that we carry out that mission. Not, we're not just another religion in the, in the marketplace of religious ideas vying for attention like everyone else. That's not the church. That's not how Jesus presents the church. The the church is his commissioned voice in the world, filled with the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, speaking the very truth of God. If it's not true, let's just go home and have pizza. But if it's true, if these words are true, if the gospel is true, well then let's speak it. Let's talk about it. Let's pray that the eyes of those who are blind would be open, that they they might see it for themselves and and, and come and be saved by this mighty king. And let's do it in confidence. We are invincible until the work is through. Sure, they're going to scorn you, but, but that's because they don't understand. And what is the scorn of men when you have the praise and power of God? Doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. Of course we're going to suffer. They all suffered, right? The church always has suffered. Of, of course the world will hate you. They, they will see you as bigoted and, and hateful, an enemy of human flourishing. And they'll make you feel the reality of that. But that's part of God's purpose and plan. That, that, that gives us the way to identify and, and know the fellowship of sharing in the suffering of Jesus Christ. That helps us remember what this is about. It's not about vacations. It's it's not about nice homes, and nice cars, and nice families. There's there's a greater something on the agenda of our life, and that's the mission of Christ in the world today. And that if we commit ourselves, you see, as 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 Christ calls us, as we follow Him, then no matter what happens. We will rise victorious, vindicated, forever to be in the presence of our Lord. We will see him face to face. It's, this is not a moral fable, you know, Aesop's fable with a moral at the end just to help you be better people. This is, this is truth from the lips of Jesus to help us be transformed people who have a vision for what our future actually is going to look like. we have an understanding of what our destiny in Jesus actually is. That we will be caught up. You personally, if you you are in Christ by faith, you personally will be caught up with all of the people of God. And you will be on the clouds of heaven. You You will be raised to meet him. And the world will watch. You're a citizen of heaven today living on earth. And Jesus wants you to know who you are. This morning, friends, we have the table of the Lord, and we're going to move right to that. But what is this table? It's a visible sign and seal that Jesus has given to you and me. It's it's his witness to us that he is coming again. He said to his disciples, do this until I come again. It it means he, he is coming again. There really is a banquet in heaven. And this table points to that table. This is is like the hors d'oeuvres, if you could say it that way, right? The the meal to remind us that the, the banquet is almost ready. It's the meal to sustain us until it's time to enter through those gates into the banquet hall. It's the meal to assure us of all that Christ has accomplished, all that he has promised. To convince us that Jesus is whom he says he is the Savior of sinners, and the King and Ruler of the world. And it's a table to remind you that you are all that Jesus says you are, the invincible, suffering, victorious, beloved Bride of Christ. Let's bow as we come to the table. Oh, God in heaven, I uh, words, Lord, by themselves are, are weightless, and yet, Lord, your words from from Jesus are just saturated with weight and glory Jesus you know our names you know our need you know our sin you know all the reasons that you could justly sentence us to eternal condemnation and yet Jesus knowing all that you walked to that cross carrying our shame like you carried that piece of wood, carrying our guilt. And you died there as the atoning sacrifice so that, Lord, we are free from the curse, free from the condemnation, free from the bondage of of death and sin and set free in Jesus Christ to commune with God. And there's no greater gift. There's no greater freedom. This is life, that we might know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you've sent. And Jesus, you give us your word, both through scripture and through your sacraments. I pray that you give us ears to hear, to truly deeply hear your voice in a way that transforms the way we think about who we are and what life is about what matters. Jesus, your word is able to wash us clean. Your word is able to strengthen us, to free us, to transform us, to prepare us as your bride to meet you on the cloud of heaven. Bless us now then, Jesus, as we meet with you around your table. In your name we pray, amen. Like to ask the elders to come forward. <laughs>